This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest. His name is Charlie Ellis, and I, I, I spend some time going over um, his CV when we actually do the show, so I won't um, repeat it, but I'm going to tell a quick story about the first time Charlie was a, a guest here. I was just captivated by uh, the combination of his intellect and integrity and common sense and the show ended and I had to be somewhere and he was walking down to Grand Central Station and I said sure I'm happy to walk with you and and we continued a conversation down 20 blocks or so from the Bloomberg building to um to Grand Central and I can't describe it any other way. It was just captivating. It's a delight and a privilege to be able to chat with someone of of his experience, knowledge, wisdom. It it was just delightful. And I sat and chatted with him for this show for about an hour and a half. If you are at all interested in anything having to do with investment management, institutional investing, investing, individual investing, indexing, retirement savings, the list goes on and on, you will appreciate this conversation. There, There is no one else like Charlie Ellis. Um, he is one of the legends of, of finance. And so with no further ado, here is my conversation with Charlie Ellis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, I have an extra special guest, a, a legend in the world of finance. His name is Charlie Ellis. And if you're unfamiliar with Mr. Ellis, let me give you a very short version of his curriculum vitae. Graduated from Yale with a BA in history, ends up getting an MBA from Harvard uh, and a PhD in finance from NYU, becomes a CFA charter holder in 1969, on the faculty of the Harvest Business School, director of the Vanguard Group, uh, on the Yale School of Management, uh, as well as the Yale Endowment, chairman of the board of the CFA Institute, one of a dozen people recognized for lifetime contributions to the investment profession by the CFA Institute, author of 16 books on investing, and we'll talk about a few of those shortly. Charlie Ellis, welcome back to Bloomberg. Glad to be here, Barry. Thank you. So that's the short version of your curriculum vitae. We'll spend some more time talking about your work in the field in a little bit, but let's jump right in to the new book that you just put out. The title, The Index Revolution, Why Investors Should Join It Now. You've already written 16 books. What motivated you to write yet another one? Well, I really believe in getting the word out. Mm -hmm. And I've had an unbelievable privilege as an insider in the investment management world. I've had a chance to meet with people all over the world and talk talk and talk and talk with them about what's going on. And once you get a really good idea of what's going on, you realize indexing makes so much sense for so many people. Everybody should seriously consider it, and most people should do it. Mm-hmm. So how do you help? Write a short book that's easy to read and see if you can attract attention. So so let's talk about indexing. You spoke at a conference recently, the Evidence-Based Investing Conference. Bill McNabb, the CEO and chairman uh, 
of the conference spoke, and the two of you both said the same thing. Gee, it's a shame indexing attracted the word passive. That that seems to be a problem. What's the issue with passive? Well, when I was growing up, we read The Little Engine That Could, mm-hmm. and we were told if you study harder, you'll get better grades. And when I got a job, I was told if you work hard, you'll get a raise. You might even get a bonus. Everything about our lives. You want to learn the piano? Spend time practicing. You want to learn how to play tennis? Practice, practice, practice. Everything has to do with do more, work harder, and you'll do better. So we come to investing and say, fine, I'm ready to go. Where do I get a chance to do better? I'm going to work hard. Somebody says, "Eh, you know, I wouldn't bother doing that. Why don't you just settle for average? Nobody wants to be average. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to settle. And the word passive is a horrible negative. Can you imagine your wife or husband introducing you as, this is my spouse, passive? Sounds terrible. So what is the better phrase to describe what people should think of when they think of indexing? Well, two. One is indexing, and the mm-hmm. second is winning. Winning. So explain that. Why is, um, why is winning, as Charlie Sheen would say, why does that leave us to, lead us to indexing? Well, one thing that I would use to describe winning is doing better than most of the other people at whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Operationally, year after year after year, over the long term, indexing does better today than active investing. That wasn't the case 25 or 30 years ago, but it is the case today. What, what accounts for that change? Massive change in virtually every variable. Just for an example, if you go back 50 years ago, there might have been 5,000 people involved in active investing. Now there are at least a million people involved, and they're smart, mm-hmm. well-educated. They've all got exactly the same tools, computers, access to the internet, Bloomberg terminals, and they've all got access to the same information because the SEC requires public companies to give everybody all the information they give to anybody. So it's not like the old days where whoever got that first call, hey, that was a moneymaker if you found it out before all your competitors did. It was wonderful. The second thing that's big, big change is it used to be it was professionals who had access to really good research a small fraction of the market competing against large numbers of amateurs who bought and sold once every year or two and didn't candidly know an awful lot. Mm -hmm. Now it's been reversed. Now 95 or more of trading on the New York Exchange is either machines or professional people, and they're playing to win. Michael Mobisnock calls this the paradox of skill. It's not that the competitors are bad. It's that everybody else is so good How is there any room to to beat them when you're playing at such high levels? So very good, and so many of them. Mm -hmm. And they have the tools, they have the technology. It's fabulous. They are so much better than managers were 20 years ago. It's night and day. So the first index fund that comes out by Jack Bogle, they were hoping to sell, you write in the book, $150 million worth, and they could barely get it over $10 million when they first launched it. It was a flop. Why did the first index fund do so poorly? It wasn't a flop. It was a big flop. (laughs) (laughs) A whole bunch of different things. Number one, nobody knew anything about indexing to speak of. And the idea wasn't out. And everybody was looking for beat the market rates of return. That Mm -hmm. was a big one. Second is there was a sales load in order to attract the sales force at the retail brokerage firms. What was that sales load? It was, I think, 6.5%. 8.5%? Could it have been 8.5%? Yeah, that's a giant that's sales a, load. That's a lot. When you're offering, I'm going to give you average, and I'm going to charge you a big entry fee to get started. 
That wasn't an annual fee. It was a one-time load for the purchase. One time, but you drop eight and a half off the top of sure. your money, and you start behind the line of scrimmage pretty far. So one of the other things that you mentioned in the book that I think is fascinating, over the past 50 years, the trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange increased from 3 million shares a day to $5 billion a day. That's a 1500 It's not time. all on the New York Stock Exchange. Some it's of a, it's off it, the board trading in New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. listed. And honestly, $5 million is an average. It varies up and down depending on what the machines are doing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today, my special guest is Charlie Ellis, a, a legend in Wall Street. He has written, and I shouldn't just say Wall Street, but a legend in all of finance. He has written 16 books one of which I think is quite fascinating. It's called Falling Short, The Coming Retirement Crisis. What is the looming retirement crisis that the United States faces? It's a complex of several different items. Let's just pick out the really big ones. Mm -hmm. Number one, people are living longer than they used to live. Longevity certainly is an ongoing shift from- Which means people are going to be in retirement for more years than they might have actually been planning on. Mm -hmm. Secondly, a fairly large fraction- Half of any couple who are in their late 60s, early 70s, half of them will need assisted living at some time. That's fairly expensive stuff, particularly if you're not prepared for it. About a third of American workers have no retirement plan whatsoever. Zero dollars saved. Zero. So it's Social Security or nothing. Yeah. That's terrible. Social Security is not enough. For sure. Then if you say, well, let's look at the people who've got coverage. It used to be that we had defined benefit plans that Mm -hmm. the company did everything. All you had to do was tell them what your address was so they could mail the checks. Now, virtually every decision has to be made by the individual. Many people are not well prepared for making those decisions. Mm -hmm. Then you look at all the different decisions. Are you going to be in the plan or not? Are you going to match the match? Are you going to escalate your contributions over time so that you're saving enough to actually cover your cost Mm -hmm. in retirement? How are you going to do the investing? How are you going to do the distributions from your investments when you do retire? Start with just one of the most obvious things that drives me crazy. If you ask people broadly, ask people here at Bloomberg, ask people who really know quite a lot about investing, what is the delta? What is the difference? between how much you get from Social Security if you claim as soon as you can, 62, Mm -hmm. or you wait until you're 70 and a half when you have to claim. Mm -hmm. Well, it must be a lot, and I usually get somewhere between 20 and 30% as an increase. That is not true. If you don't claim at 62 and do claim defer until you get to 70 and a half, the increase every year for the rest of your life, as long as you live, and it's inflation protected, is an increase of 76%. Really? That's giant. That's a giant payout. And all I would like is that everybody knew and would tell everybody they know. 70%. 76% more every effing year. So there's no reason to, unless you have no choice, if you could wait till 70 and a half, that's clearly the better. Unless you're planning to die in your late 60s or early 70s, in which case you should take the money. But most people are not planning (laughs) on that. Let me make a note of that. So there's a a data point in the book that that I find mind-blowing. As and, and this, this data is a few years old, but I, I looked it up since, and I know it hasn't changed dramatically. As of 2013, the median household approaching retirement only had $111,000 in 401k and IRA holdings. And if you do what financial advisors suggest, 
you withdraw 4% a year, that put that creates less than five thousand dollars in annual income. How less than four and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, that's unbelievable. <laughs> now the numbers have gone up, but I think it's now one hundred and thirteen thousand. I um, I forgot the um, not the investment company institute, uh, the ebir.org. Uh, one of those. Ebri. So so ebri right. So that that's where I got the the one thirteen number. But still, it, it's it's an insignificant. Amount of amount of money. Yeah, you, we could argue about the specific details. It doesn't matter. For people going into retirement mm-hmm. with usually something like twenty years to go, a hundred, hundred and ten, hundred and twenty, even one hundred and thirty thousand is no help at all to covering the costs that they're going to be living with. Not no help at all. Well, it's not quite that bad. So, but so it's, it's a sucker bet. You s- looks like you got a lot of money. Imagine what it's like if you're a working guy, mm-hmm. Joe Sixpack, and you have been working along, and you look at your account, and you say, Barry, I got more money than I ever dreamed I would have. Right. And it's in my own name. I've got a hundred and ten, hundred and fifteen thousand smackers. That's Gotta terrific. Last you thirty years, uh-huh. right? So you retire long, long run. Uh, even if you retire at seventy and you live to eighty-five, fifteen years is still a long time to not be having any income. And it's not just individuals. The other data point from the book: the public sector is just as bad. The Congressional Budget Office stated by any measure, just about every single state and local pension plan is underfunded. How, how did that come about? Well, that's the defined benefit plans in almost every case. Mm-hmm. So these are public employees, you know, teachers, teachers fire, policemen, police. firemen. Mm-hmm. What I like to say, real Americans. Mm-hmm. These are a crowd of people who've put in a good long term serving the public. Right. Okay. And where are they now? Their retirement depends on two things. How much money has already been set aside Mm -hmm. and how much money is going to be earned by the investment on that money that was set aside. Okay. In you look through the 80s and 90s, people would have said, boy, you know, we can earn a lot. 10%, 12%, 14% years came roaring through. We all had a great time. Right. If you assume that's what you could earn and you say, well, I want to be conservative, so I'm only going to assume 8%. Mm Mm-hmm. Track it out over time. That's your pension. Now, what if somebody comes along and says, Barry, that was an unusual time period. Interest rates went from 13% to 2%. Right. That changed everything, made everything look like a higher rate of return. You're not going to see that again. Right. What are you going to see? Well, we got 2%, 3% in fixed income, and it looks like 6 7% in equity investments. Right. What's the mix? Blend so 60, you add 40. 3 and 7, and you end up with 10%. It's so we've got- What's called an unfunded obligation. Right. That's on paper. We've signed up for it, but it hasn't been paid in yet because we assume we're going to get a great rate of return. Now we're assuming we're going to get a much lower rate of return. How much do we have to put up? A lot. So that blended rate of return, I'm joking about adding three and seven, but you take the 60-40 portfolio, seven equity, three bonds, you're really looking at a five and a half, six percent. Uh, a five and a half, six percent return at yeah, best. Three percent in bonds would be a little optimistic. Uh, uh, well, I'm taking the average over the next thirty years. But yep. if you look at the path and you look at the long term average in bonds, that that said, uh, you, you're so if we're looking at a much lower rate of return, who's going to have to make up that shortfall? Because these are contractually guaranteed payouts as part of public employees' employment contract. Who's on the hook for that balance? Drop back to the really serious negotiations. Uh There are three parties at interest. 
the government, the right. mayor, the senate, the uh, governor, mayor, whoever it was, right, the public, mm-hmm. and the workers. The workers are represented by a union. The union guys are pretty smart. They've studied this stuff for years. They pay a lot of attention. Right. The political people are focused on the next election, sure. and they're pretty good at that sort of thing. The party that's going to have to pay up any difference doesn't get to come to the meetings. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Charlie Ellis. He has been on the faculty of the Harvard Business School. Uh, he has served on the Yale Endowment, Board of Directors of Vanguard, uh, the list goes on and on. Author of 16 books on finance. I, I want to start discussing your history in, in financial services with a quote of yours that, that I really should have framed. And it's this. The investment management business should not should be a profession, but is not. Explain that. Well, a profession is defined by the service by the experts on behalf of individuals who don't happen to know very much about what the experts are expert in. Mm -hmm. That's why law is a profession. That's why medicine is a profession. And investment management used to be entirely a profession. It didn't pay very well, but you could do some really nice work for individual people and help them through the solution to the various problems they might face. Wait, th this profession didn't pay very well in the old days? No. My assumption is it was a big moneymaker. Uh, in the 1950s? Really? No, it wasn't. 1940s, it certainly wasn't. 1930s, it was terrible. I can imagine. Nobody went into investment management in those days. Huh. That's quite, that's quite fascinating. Out of my class at Harvard Business School in 1963, mm -hmm. only three of us went into investment management, and I got into it accidentally. So let's tell that story. That's a fascinating story. How did you stumble into investment management? I was looking for a job, and mm -hmm. a friend of mine's father was looking for somebody to come and work in a junior position. And so I thought it would be a really interesting conversation. I thought that he was talking for the Rockefeller Foundation. It turned out he was talking about the Rockefeller family office, a tiny little investment team that managed investments for the family and also for some of their great philanthropic institutions like Rockefeller University, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, stuff like that. When you say a tiny little team, the Rockefeller family office, that was not an insignificant sum of money. A lot of money, but the number of people was small. Ah. There were only six of us. Okay. So you thought you were going into some philanthropic, arty sort of yeah, job? And I got a, started an interview with a guy, and I realized, this man is really smart. He knows a lot, uh -huh. and I need to learn a lot. I could learn a lot with him. I better go there because I don't know enough. So there's, there's <clears> a legend that Goldman Sachs offered you a job, and you said, no thanks. What, is that any truth to that? It's totally true, but they didn't actually offer the job. They had it printed on a piece of paper. Uh-huh. And I'm looking at it realizing, you know, Dad always thought Goldman Sachs was a great firm. I'd love to go with a great firm, but I need to earn at least $6,000 so I can pay off my wife's loans for going to college. Mm -hmm. She'd gone to college on a scholarship and a loan package, and I needed to pay that off. So I had figured I could save $1,000 out of 6000 I can't take a job for 4800 Never occurred to me you might get a raise. Never occurred to me you might earn a bonus. <laughs> So it, it ended up working out anyway with, yep. with the Rockefellers and, and eventually Greenwich Associates, uh, the firm you did. You, you, you co-founded, founded? I was the only one. You're the, <laughs> you're the one who founded it. So how did you, what did you learn from working with the Rockefellers? I would think a family office sitting on a giant pool of business, but giant pool of capital, 
would really teach you the business from the inside out. What, what did you learn from that experience? I learned a lot. Number one is that most people have not thought through what they ought to be doing with their investments over the long term, and they have not settled on a policy that really makes sense to them individually. Mm-hmm. Second, there's a lot of information, and if you don't have that information, you're in trouble. And third, that investment management is a wonderful, interesting, fascinating, exciting, and filled with all kinds of experiences, wonderful place to work. Mm-hmm. So, so all told, that was a positive experience. Lucky, ha- lucky, it- <laughs> and very positive. But by the way, that's a theme that comes up on the people I sit with and have these conversations with over and over again. The role of just being in the right place at the right time and getting a little, hey, smart is good, but sometimes lucky is better. Much, much better. And you'll find that those who've been around for a long time, it's all luck. Those that are around only recently, they're paying attention how much you can get paid because it is the best paid line of work in the world. Today. By the way, back back to some quotes from the book, the most obvious success factor for us was luck, luck, and luck. So how? Uh, uh, is that an exaggeration, or oh. is is do you think luck really, serendipity, a roll of the dice, really has a big impact on the lives we lead? I know it had a huge impact on my life. Mm-hmm. I doubt it had anywhere near that big an impact on most of the other people that have been around. But anybody who has been in the investment management area for the last 50 years doesn't think that was really lucky. Mm-hmm. Is either kidding himself or kidding you. So- uh, we're going to talk later about um, winning the losers game, but how often do investors confuse luck for skill? All the time. All the time. They're normal human beings. That's what human beings do. If it works out well, I was smart. If it doesn't work out well, I was unlucky. <laughs> I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our special guest today is Charlie Ellis. He is a legend in the world of finance, having served on the board of directors of Vanguard, as well as the Yale uh, Endowment Fund. Let's talk a little bit about a paper you wrote in 1975 that I think has a fascinating history, um, both where it came from and, and where it went. You authored The Loser's Game in 1975 as an article for the Financial Analyst Journal after reading a book about tennis. Tell us about that. Well, the hero of the story is really a brilliant guy named Simon Ramo, who was the founder of what was called Thompson Ramo Wooldridge and then was called TRW, and is in fact the organization that helped America with its entire space program. He was a gifted amateur athlete, and he also was a gifted musician. He used to play in a quartet with three members of the Los Angeles Professional Symphony Orchestra. Real Renaissance man. He sure was. And he must have had a wonderful life. And along the way, he decided to write this little bitty book, which is the best guide to how you could do better in tennis I've ever heard of. But it also included a definition that was very, very helpful to me. He said there's a whole lot of people that play tennis. Mm -hmm. Two, three percent of them play a kind of tennis that's completely different from everybody else. They play winner's tennis. They are absolutely fabulous. The shots are always right near the line. They never hit the net. They never hit it out to speak of. Their placements are terrific. Their strategies are brilliant. They are wonderful. Most of the rest of us. Most of the rest of us play a different game. Yeah, I know. Same rules, same scoring, same clothes, same court, same facilities, maybe even at the same club, but we play a completely different game. The game we play is the game not to lose. Mm -hmm. 
where the control of the game is in the hands not of the winner, but of the loser. So in other words, it's it's people lose by making unforced errors and other such foibles as opposed to winning by scoring points. Yeah, if you lose less, you'll be the winner. Lose less, you'll be. And by the way, the name of that book by Simon Ramo is Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Tennis Player. So how does that manifest itself as the loser's game about investing? Well, there are two kinds of problems in investing. One is the long-term policy problem. The other is the operational problem. People, all of us, are guilty almost all the time of doing things that aren't really brilliant decisions. Okay. So we make mistakes that we really shouldn't have made. If we had it to do over again, a lot of us wouldn't make those mistakes. And um, reality is we do because we're human beings. Mm-hmm. The other kind of mistake is we're aiming in the wrong direction. I'll come back to that later if you want to. But day in, day out, people buying and selling stocks are prone to getting caught having made an error in their judgment on the price. So in other words, if you can avoid those self-inflicted errors, you win by not losing. Yes. And the parallels are, are obvious um, as investors and, and tennis. And very powerful. On the long, long, long term, if you aim in the right direction, you got a good chance of getting there. You want to go to Chicago? Don't head south towards Florida. So go to I, Chicago. As an investor, how do you aim in the right direction? What, what, what does that exactly mean? Well, it, I can't give you a straight answer except in generalities because of each of us is unique. Mm-hmm. But start with how much money do you have? Are you saving money or spending money? Mm-hmm. How many years do you have before you need to cover your retirement or pay for your kids going to college or whatever is your objective? Mm-hmm. How much wealth do you have? How much income are you creating? Take all those things. You can work out an investment strategy that makes good sense. Let me give you an example. I'm 79. Most people would say, in that age, you must have a lot of bonds. I have no bonds. Why? Really? Why? Well, I still enjoy working, and I'm able to keep earning enough to cover my operating costs. Uh-huh. And secondly, I look at my investments, and I say, who are you investing for? I'm actually investing for my grandchildren. Right. You know, it's average no longer, age of 10. Right. So your portfolio is not the average 79-year-old man's portfolio. No. It's for someone who has an investing horizon of 75 years. And it's not to brag about it. It's just the reality. I ought to address that reality. If I did the normal thing of saying, hey, you're about 80, you probably ought to have at least 60%, maybe 70% in fixed income. I look at it and say, that's crazy. I'm investing on behalf of my grandchildren. Okay. And and the, someone else who isn't investing on, be, on behalf of their grandchildren, they have to aim in the right direction. Now, that means a mix of stocks and bonds and something appropriate for their where they are, whether they're working or retired. Yeah. Every magician knows if you want to be able to pull off a good trick, distract your audience so they don't notice what you're actually doing. Okay. The same thing is true of everybody's having an illicit affair. <laughs> distract your audience and they won't find out what you're doing. Same thing is all kinds of different problems. You get people to focus on the wrong thing. In investing, most people get focused on day in, day out stock prices and how'd right. you do this quarter, this year, maybe this the quarter, last two years. This week, this day. Absolutely. And the real questions are all about long, long, long-term. It's, to me, it's the father-in-law question. The man has got a beautiful daughter. She's bright. She's interesting. She's got a wonderful future ahead of her. She's mm-hmm. introducing a guy. Does he care whether he's got blue eyes or brown eyes? Does he care whether he's got a wonderful sense of humor? Does he care whether the guy is tall or a good dancer? No, none of those things. What he wants to know is one single thing. Is this going to be a good friend for my daughter 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, will she be in a good, happy position? Got to think long term. Yep. So, so let's talk a little more about the article. It goes on to win the Graham and Dodd Award in 1977, and that ultimately leads to you writing the book. Well, also Dad's advice. Dad, when we were growing up, said, don't find a problem unless you find a solution to that problem. I've, I've heard similar advice given to young employees. Don't bring problems to your boss. Identify problems and bring a solution to it. Years ago, I didn't think it was fair for dad to say that because it's hard to come up with solutions sometimes, but he was right. And so if you put out the loser's game, this is a tough place to play and be successful. Mm -hmm. Then the question obviously is, okay, what would you do? And the answer is don't play the detailed transactions game. Right. Play the long-term policy game of getting in the right direction. And I don't, back to driving, I don't care how fast you drive going to Chicago, just be sure you're not headed towards Miami. So it's funny because the the article from 1975 really presages the indexing argument to be made 40-plus years later. Well, back in the 70s, it was an accurate description of the situation for individuals mm-hmm. if they're competing with professionals. Now it's an accurate description for professionals competing with professionals. And individuals should not be investing in mutual funds without being aware of how tough it is to be a successful mutual fund manager if you're an active investor. It's so, hard. So the there's a theme that comes up in index revolution, in um, the retirement crisis, and in winning the losers game, uh, as well as extraordinary tennis for ordinary tennis players, which is the importance of understanding your own skill set and limitations and not trying to do more than you're capable of doing. It, it, discuss that. All true. It's the same thing in driving an automobile on the highway. It's the same thing in virtually every dimension of our lives. Try to figure out who you are and what you want to accomplish and focus on that. That uh, uh, Remind me later, I'm going to tell you a funny driving story related to that exact thing. So we talk, um, we, we have some quotes of yours that I really love and I want to throw your way. Um, quote, the investment management business is built upon a simple and basic belief. Professional money managers can beat the market. That premise appears to be false. Explain that. The market is priced by investors. 50 years ago, those investors were individuals who bought and sold once every year or two. They honestly didn't know an awful lot. And so they made a lot of errors. Today, the market is entirely priced by professionals. They are very much on top of what's going on. And while they're never always dead right, they're so close to being right compared to anybody else. It's the old joke about the two guys and the bear. And one guy's putting on (laughs) his sneakers and the other guy says, God, you can't stop to put on your sneakers. The bear will catch you. No, he won't. He'll catch you. Right. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Yep. So- (laughs) <laughs> so I find it fascinating that you identified this in, in 1975. You and a handful of other people, Jack Bogle and maybe Burton Malkiel, who else in 1975 was thinking along the lines that, hey, it's nearly impossible to beat the market. And once you factor in turnover and taxes and costs on a consistent basis over time, it's all but impossible. How were 
so few people recognizing this way back when. Well, Barry, let's be realistic. Investment management, active investment management, competing with everybody else is great fun. It, it is fun. And it's it too really much fun. Concent- requires concentrated attention. Mm-hmm. So people are really, really working at that. How are they going to pay any attention to something that's completely foreign to everything they've ever heard of? It just doesn't make sense. Which is step back and look at the big picture and say, is my efforts futile or am I, you know, how many times can you roll the stone up the hill and have it roll back down on you before you realize hey, maybe this is a wasted There's one effort. other thing that's really important. The data that was available to people was inaccurate. It was precise, uh-huh. but it was inaccurate. The reports on who was performing compared to the market looked terribly encouraging. Looked like 70 or 80% of the professional managers were beating the market. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you've left out somebody. Who'd you leave out? The guys that got killed. We've been speaking with Charlie Ellis. He is formerly on the board of directors of Vanguard and on the uh, Yale Endowment Fund. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for for doing this. You know, when we first interviewed you, we've now done a hundred and something plus interviews. You You were in the early portion, and I think I was a little rough around the edges when we first started. I'd like to think that just through sheer repetition, I've gotten somewhat better. You're as smooth as silk. Oh, absolutely. Trust me. If it sounds smooth, it's only because I have really good engineers who edit out many, but not all of my mistakes. We sometimes leave them in um, for fun. Um, There's so many questions that we blew through I want to come back to before we get to our standard questions. And let's start with a quote that I love. And this is in um, the book Index Revolution. In 1977, the director of research at Chase Manhattan Bank which is now Chase J.P. Morgan, but this is obviously 30 uh, acquisitions ago, quote, the proliferation of index funds would lead to massively inefficient markets and a stock's price would become more a function of monies flowing into index funds than reflection or its investment merits. The entire capital allocation process of the securities market would be distorted and only companies represented in indexes would be able to re- raise any equity capital. Capital. True or false? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, it's false. But secondly, nobody's saying that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I st- occasionally people say, oh, what's going to happen? When, aren't we getting rid of the, the capital allocation function with all this money flowing to indexing? Well, but t- that's hyperbole and it's future stuff. Mm-hmm. If you had everybody indexing, wouldn't that mean that we've got a real problem? Yes, of course it would. And when everybody stops smoking, please let me know because that would be a really important reality. <laughs> a lot but, less people are smoking than used to and uh, a lot more people are in, uh, in the United more, States. Worldwide, more people right. are smoking now than ever. And the... It's very, very unlikely that we will get so much indexing going on that smart people won't be smart enough to figure out that they should now think about doing a little bit of active investing. 
So what so are we now? Thirty percent of investment. Thirty percent of assets, but the, in the game. US. The game is in the trading markets, and uh-huh. in the trading markets because index funds are very low turnover. Right, five percent of total volume or less, like or less, and it's not aggressive. It's kind of go with the flow activity most of the time. It's highly skilled in the transactions, uh-huh. very skilled, but actually it's just kind of going with the normal flow. So the impact on pricing is de minimis. So index investing doesn't affect prices very much. Certainly doesn't. So, And you fu- talk to the people who know the most about it because they're trading for index funds. Mm-hmm. They've figured out how to handle almost every one of the questions that people have raised and handle them without any trouble. Some of the pro- questions are really interesting still, and they still have some minor difficulties. Right. But in the total picture, it's just no problem at all. So if we were to look at the 30% of investing that currently flows into 30% indexing, of the assets. Of the assets. If that were ever to become 50, 60, 70%, would that create opportunities for the stock pickers? Would there be more inefficiencies at that point? Not in those levels. If you got to 90%, maybe. Mm-hmm. But look at what you have to do. You've got a million people who are active involved in active investing. Uh-huh. How many of those people have to retire from the field and say, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go back and be a lawyer instead of being an investor. I'm going to go into a normal business instead of investment management. I don't want to do this stuff anymore. It's going to be a long, long time before... What do you have to do? You have to cut their pay by 50%. That wouldn't be enough to cause most people to quit. Mm-hmm. You really got a major change on your hands before you're going to see anything like that. It won't happen in my lifetime. I doubt it'll happen in my son's lifetime. And really? I doubt, doubt, doubt that it'll happen in my granddaughter's lifetime. Oh, so you think that this is going to go on continuously? No, the, because uh, of human beings being human beings. And there's no other way to no other way to deal with that. Let let's talk about some of the issues on the retirement side. Um, Rick, Richard Thaler had written a book called Nudge, where he talks about a lot of things that now require affirmative steps by the employee should be replaced, not opt in, but opt out. So in other words, you join a firm, you're automatically enrolled in the 401k. And you're automatically enrolled in increases as your salary goes up unless you opt out of that. What What do you think of that? I think it's a terrific idea for two different reasons. There's a strong political view, social mm-hmm. view, that we should not have government setting the rules. Right. Or telling us what to do. That'd be better. This does not tell you what to do. Right. You have a choice. And you but- have a choice at all times. And you would have the choice to say, nope, that's not for me. Nope, that's not for me. Nope, that's not for me. It's called opt out. You say, I don't want to be in the plan. Okay, if you'd make that as your choice, fine. And say, no, I want to be in the plan, but I don't want to match the match. I don't want free money (laughs) by putting up my 4% of match the employer's 4%. If you really don't want to do it, that's your freedom of choice. If you say, well, I do want to do the 4% match, but I don't want to increase the savings rate as I get raises from time to time. Okay, you can do that. I don't want to be in a uh, target date fund. Fine. If you don't want to do that, you could do something else. But we make it available to you. So in other words, the choice architecture, which is the phrase of this, is the default setting is significant. And, and I know they've done experiments in different countries with organ donation. Hey, you don't have to be an organ donor. But the default setting on the driver's license is you are an organ donor, and it goes from an 8 or a 10% participation rate to a 90% yep. rate 
and there's no shortage of organs. And and all it is is you don't have to do it. You just have to check a box that says you're opting out. That's it. And you get a huge increase in the percentage of workers who become part of the plan, huge increase in the percentage of people who take the match, huge increase in the percentage of people who escalate over time their savings rate, huge increase in the number of people who get into an automatic investment program. Those are really positive moves. So opt out should be you're automatically enrolled, you automatically do the match, you automatically do the increase. And if you don't set a fund, if you don't choose funds, you automatically go into a target date fund. That's the default setting. If you want to change it, you're free to change it, but at least let's start you out on on something as opposed to nothing. So if you if you don't respond, there's something happening as opposed to nothing. You, you lose no freedom of choice, and you have the benefit. If you really don't know what to do, go with the flow. So I got a lot of pushback the other day. I did a column about the IRA minimums. I'm sorry, the IRA ceilings. They're at $5,500. That seems like an awfully small number of, of if people don't have a 401k and they want to max out their tax-deferred um, retirement savings from when the ERISA laws were passed, just adjusting for inflation, you should be closer to 7500 And unfortunately, the way inflation has proven itself to exist, the things we want, the technology, the phones, the computers... They're going down in price, but the things we need, housing and healthcare and, and that sort of stuff, they're all going up in price. So really that seventy five hundred, if anything, it should be closer to ten thousand. Do you see the the ceiling for IRA contributions as an issue for, for a lot of middle class families? You bet. All right. Now the pushback I got was on and if you're raising the IRA ceiling, you have to raise the four oh one K and people said, Well, it's already eighteen thousand and Imagine two people. I, I think you have to raise them both, but so many people fail to meet the ceiling on the 401k. It's probably not as pressing. It would be great to raise the ceiling. It would be really, really great to help people understand how good that could be for them and why they should take action and take advantage of the higher ceiling. Uh, I don't. I don't doubt that at all. Let's talk about the savings rate. Um, Three percent, three percent is too low of a savings rate to replace seventy-five percent of employment income during retirement. How do we get people to save more than three percent of their income? Help people understand what the impact is when they are retired of how badly hurt they will be if they don't save more, and we ought to be teaching that day after day after day. Teach it in high school. Teach it when people first join a retirement plan. Teach it in the public domain all the time. In high school, uh, do we have any sort of financial literacy courses offered at the high school level? Yeah, some. But the problem we have, all of us have, is we're all too busy. We've Mm -hmm. got too many things on our minds. So we, yeah, you know, I should lose 10 pounds, but, you know, I just don't want to do it today. Yeah, I know I should do more exercise, but I just don't want to get started today. Yeah, I know. And so many things that are crowded in on, you got to get a job, you got to pay your taxes, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's hard for people to set aside the time to say, now I'm going to learn enough about investing. And the shame is that investing is basically the stuff that's really important Mm -hmm. is really pretty simple. 
And if people didn't get confused with, well, only smart people know that sort of stuff, or the language always bothers me. I don't know what a P.E. ratio is, and I, they talk about earnings yield, and I don't know what that is either. And pretty soon people say, oh, hell, I'll come back to it later, but I can't do it today. If they knew what the problem really is and boil it down to the simplest kinds of decisions, this is how much money you need to have when you're retired. Okay. To have that money to spend every year, this is how much you have to have in your nest egg. Okay. To get there, you have to save this kind of money every year and invest it in this kind of sensible way. If we could teach people those four or five things, they'd be all set. You should write a book about that. <laughs> I oh. did. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, wait. You already did. So there's a, there's a thesis out there that says that financial literacy education is great, but people rapidly forget about it. You could teach people stuff, and it stays with them for three months, for six months, but not for a lifetime. How, how do we get past the sort of short-termism of, of people being so easily distracted by... By life, as you described it. One that you obviously identified earlier is opt-out versus opt-in. If every retirement plan, you automatically did the sensible thing unless you said, no, I'm different from most other people, so I've got a real reason for wanting to do something different on this item or that item or that item. Fine. You could have the freedom to make a I'm different decision. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can have the super freedom to say, somebody else has thought about this pretty damn well. They've done a good job of figuring out what most people need. I'm going to take what's the blue plate special. And and the problem is the peop- when folks don't do that, what you're left with 30, 40 years hence, the fear is that's going to fall on the taxpayer's shoulders because it's just going to really put stress on things like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. It, it's well, all going to end up back on the taxpayer's lap. You want to be really alarmist? Sure. Think how badly this country would feel if there were a large number of people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who were highly focused on the fact that they really were hurting financially. Mm -hmm. And they turned to you and other people who are experts and said, you did us real harm. It's all your fault, and we're really angry, and we're going to express our views at the polling place, (laughs) and we're going to do whatever we can because we got hurt, and you knew we were going to get hurt. You knew it all along. Why'd you do that to us? They won't say, gosh, you know, I made a mistake. Years ago, I should have done something. I've created this problem for myself. That's not going to happen. Didn't that just happen already? Didn't we see? The first round. Right. That's so. Let's let's without talking about politics because nobody cares about my views on politics. How much of what took place in the polls and the angst and other factors like that, the populist uprising, is that a one-off event in 2016, or is that a warning shot? Hey, this is what the future is going to look like if we don't develop some economic security. For, for the population at large. It's a first round only. Really? It could get worse pretty damn fast. There's going to be more more of this sort of populist uprising um, in the future. If we don't, as a nation, take care of our problems, we will have those problems fester and get worse and worse, and they can show up in politics very rapidly. So if you're going to be rational and reasonable about this, I, I don't know what I can, I can say to you about that. Um, there's a data point in the book that I found to be uh, astonishing, and I wanted to get to it before um, we move on to some of our, our standard questions. If you start saving at 25 and retire at 70, 
versus starting to save at 45 and retire at 62, you reduce the required savings rate by a factor of 10. Is that is that right? That's an astonishing number. It is an astonishing number, and it's a shame we don't all know it. It really helps to have started early and have the accumulated power. Einstein said that he thought the most powerful thing he knew of was compound interest, mm -hmm. compound rates of return. If you're in it for the long term, and we all are, whether we like it or not, in right. it for the long term, if you're in it for the long term, that's a wonderful thing to have going for you. All you need is time, T-I-M-E, time. Most of those gains come in the last 10 years. That's that's the biggest. So if you're starting at 25, the bulk of your gains are coming um, in the last, let's let's call it last fifth of, of your investment horizon. You start at 45 and you go to 62. You're not giving yourself enough time for compounding to work. That's correct. So let's see what else. There's one or two other things. We've covered some stuff. You know what I didn't talk to you about? So you you were working in the midst of the bear market of 66 to 82. When you, you talked about, hey, nobody really wants to work in finance in the 30s, and there wasn't a lot of money in the 50s. What was it like from 1962 six to 1982 when we had 10%, 12% inflation rate and stocks went nowhere for 16 years? Ooh, yeah. Stocks didn't go nowhere. Stocks went down. The drop in the value of the Dow Jones average, just mm -hmm. to take any measure, the drop in the 70s was greater than the drop in the, from 29 to the bottom of the 30s. So what do we- Inflation adjusted. The real, real return. So you had, it was a 90% loss once you factored in inflation. It was hell on wheels. <laughs> so what did you do during that period of time? How do you, how do you deal with institutions? How do you deal with individuals when- there's no, not a lot of upside in equities, and whatever gains you have in bonds are going to be offset by inflation. Well, it was worse in bonds than it was in stocks because you do a lot of damage to a bond portfolio if you take interest rates from 13% to 2%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was terrible everywhere. Uh, All the way around, from 2% to 13%, right? When you're, you're from... No, if the Federal Reserve says interest rates ought to be high to break inflation. Right. Paul Volcker did this country a lot of good doing that. Sure. But he really, really smashed the markets from 13% inflation or uh -huh. rate of return on a treasury bond all the way down to 2% on More a treasury recently. bond. Sure. That's a long sweep of real pain and anguish for people who own the fixed income. We, we just finished a 30-year or maybe even a 35-year bull market in bonds. When, when you're looking at portfolios going forward, what should people be thinking about? Now, I know you don't have a lot of bonds, but the average institution, the average investor, what do you think about when you see rates at 2 2.5% going who knows where? How do you put together um, a plan over for the next couple of decades, starting from such low rates of interest? First of all, we all ought to know it's not easy now because prices of bonds and prices of stocks are high. And the Federal Reserve has done all of us as a nation real good by getting the interest rates down enough so that the employment has gone up enough so that we're really starting to see the economy come back to its full capabilities and potential. Mm -hmm. It has been terribly painful for the people who depend on interest income 
because they've seen interest income go from five, six, seven percent down to two, three percent. That hurts. Mm-hmm. So be realistic about that. But if you're looking at what should you do as an investor today, first of all, think long term. Secondly, take a look at the total picture. Don't look just at your stock and bond portfolio. Look at your home, social security, and other and your income as an earning person, so-called mm-hmm. intellectual property. Those are all really important assets. What are they worth? And then try with that total portfolio to make a sensible decision as to what would be right for you as an individual, knowing we're all different. And the one question I know I didn't get to before that I that I really wanted to was about benchmarking. So in the index revolution, you allude to this. Um, what was benchmarking like in the early days? How do you benchmark an index when there really isn't a frame of reference? What What was done in the 70s when it came to that? Well, in the 50s and 60s, what would have been done is you look at the Dow Jones average and say that's probably about it, or you look at what you hoped to be able to earn your uh, return assumption and think that was about it, that the data was not available on how well pension funds were performing compared to other pension funds, mm-hmm. how well insurance companies were managing compared to banks, compared to investment council firms. And when that data came out through a firm called A.G. Becker and Merrill Lynch in those days, the performance measurement, all of a sudden the data, my God, Barry, look at the data. This is really important. And people started saying, let's go find managers who can do a really good job for us. And that's where active investment management started to take off. Because if you were an active investment manager and you had access to really good research, which was Mm -hmm. just being created in those days, and you're willing to act fairly quickly instead of waiting for the monthly investment committee meeting where you're trying to run, if you were willing, if you're willing to be assertive and do your very best, you could really do a lot better than the market. Those were glorious days for active investing, uh-huh. but they're gone. That's it. That That's history. It's amazing to think that that the Dow Jones, which is not just large cap, these are the biggest companies, uh, amongst the biggest companies in the world, just seems like such an odd... Um, Benchmark for so many, so many. Oh, you'd probably laugh. We used slide rules in those days. We right. didn't have calculators. <laughs> you know, when we wanted to do research, we went to the New York Stock Exchange. They had a small set-aside library of all the filings with the SEC, and you, page after page after page you could do, trying to figure out what's going on in this company or that company. You go out and meet with management, and they would talk with you for hours, trying to help you understand their company. It was a very different world than the world we live in today. So that's that's quite fascinating, and um, I, I I've seen a lot of those changes um, firsthand. But the fifties and sixties are before my time. It sounds it sounds like it was pretty uh, interesting and amazing place to work. Let's go to my standard questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, and and some of these are going to require a little recall on your part. Let, let's jump right into these. So. The thing that I find fascinating about you is you graduate Yale with a major in art history. Did you ever imagine art history would somehow lead to finance? No. And and how did that art history background, because you're obviously an accomplished, successful person in the world of finance. How did the art history training help you within the field? 
Not very much, honestly, but it helped me in the sense of when I had, I traveled a great deal in the work I did as a consultant on investment management. So I was in London a lot and other major cities. So if I had a meeting canceled, I knew what to do. I'd go down to the art museum in mm -hmm. that particular city and have plenty of time to look at the beautiful pictures and stuff like that. So it was life enhancing. Yeah, it was great fun. Uh, it also taught me a little bit about how to look more carefully because the difference between a really great painting and a pretty good painting is not obvious. Mm -hmm. It's in some of the details and the specifics. And the difference between a forgery and an original is, of course, really important. And being able to look carefully was helpful. But uh, I wouldn't give too much. It was more in the recreation. Why do I love to play? When I was growing up, I loved to play golf, and then I played tennis. Why did I play tennis? Because my wife likes to play tennis. Uh, easy. So... I wouldn't try to draw too much out of it. So you were an art history major, and then you got into investment management. There's no real linkage at all. So, so okay, so let's put art history aside. Who were some of your early mentors? Who, who guided your career when you moved into finance? Well, I was very lucky to work for a guy who was a brilliant person, uh, and he happened to be in investment management, and he happened to be working on investment problems. So I was there to learn from him what I could learn. Honestly, it didn't make very much difference. If he'd been in real estate, that would have been fine. If he'd been in retailing, that would have been fine. This was a guy that could teach me a lot. So want to want to share a name with us? Name was well, there are two guys actually: Jay Richardson Dilworth. Mm -hmm. Dick Dilworth was a fabulously talented guy. Uh, many people confuse him with the once-time mayor of Philadelphia, completely different, different person. Different guy. Uh, but Dick Dilworth was a as good an illustration of the finest in America as you would find anywhere. Really? And the other guy was a fellow named Robert Strange, as in Robert Strange McNamara. They were cousins. And Bob Strange was also brilliant, and he was my direct supervisor, and a wonderful experience to work with two really brainy guys who were very, very well-connected because people thought the world of them as individuals. Mm -hmm. so, so let's talk a little bit about the investors that who influenced your approach to investing. Who were the thinkers and investors that actually affected how you look at the world of, of putting capital at risk? Well, there are a whole bunch of them, but I'll tell you the one that I think is obviously the best. Uh, Sandy Gottesman, who for many years was on the board at Berkshire Hathaway uh -huh. as chairman of the board. And Sandy ran a firm called First Manhattan, fine New York firm. And he was a client of mine when I was at Greenwich Associates. And one year, I recommended they not stay in the institutional brokerage business and mm -hmm. concentrate on the investment management business. The next year, I went to see him, and he said, you're right. We shouldn't be in the institutional brokerage business. We're just going to do investment management. I said, well, um, sorry to hear that in one sense, but I'm awfully glad you took the message. He said, well, that completes our business conversation. Now, what would you like to talk about? And <laughs> lucky, lucky, lucky me. I said, Sandy, you're one of the best investment managers in this city. I'd love to have you tell me how you think about investing yourself. He said, that's easy. I said, thank you. Tell me all. He said, I'm invested in Berkshire Hathaway because I think Warren Buffett has figured out how to do investing in a way that is different from anybody else can do. I think he's brilliant and very, very disciplined. He's a long-term investor. And so that's my major investment. And he spent about half an hour teaching me to understand Berkshire Hathaway. What, what year was this? 
This had been in the early 1970s, 74, I think it was. So Berkshire Hathaway is not what it is today. It was barely on anybody's radar. And did you follow his advice? I certainly it? did. So you're you're an investor with with Berkshire since the 70s. And I've learned a lot by reading Warren Buffett's reports. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from Warren himself. Mm-hmm. And I have had an unbelievably positive experience. I, I can imagine, to, to say the least. So um, it's ironic that you're talking about index investing when in the early 70s, when the opportunity existed, you found your way to Berkshire Hathaway. Those opportunities don't exist anymore, do they? Uh, there may exist, but they'd be hard for me to find. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Well, I think they'd be hard for and anyone I think to find. When, when Warren Buffett says that for his wife in her retirement years— right. He's going to use primarily index funds. Makes a lot of sense. When he says for most individuals, that's what they should do. Makes a lot of sense. And then when David Swenson, who is the chief investment officer for Yale, has done a wonderful job of investing as an active client in investing, says most everybody should be using index funds. I'm smart enough to realize there are some guys who are really, really good at this. And <laughs> they say that's what we ought to do. Probably ought to pay attention. So let's let's talk about Swenson for a minute. He he created what everyone now calls the Yale model. It spawned a million imitators. None of them have been able to do what he's capable of doing. And Yale consistently outperforms most of the other large endowments, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, etc. Why has he been so singularly successful? at the Yale model that he invented, and how come other people have been unable to find success just doing what he does? It's a little too strong a statement. There's some other people who've done a very good job, but Mm -hmm. David is really unique. Uh, First of all, he's brilliant, Mm -hmm. really smart. Secondly, he's really well-educated, did his economics PhD at Yale and was top of the deck. Jim Tobin was his dissertation advisor, and Jim (laughs) thought so highly of David that they had a great personal father-to-son kind of relationship. Uh-huh. David's got Midwest values, so he's all about integrity and doing the right thing for the right reasons. Deep, deep-rooted. And he's devoted to the idea of doing a great job for Yale because thousands of people benefit from that. All the kids are on scholarship, get better scholarships because David Swenson has done such a great job for that university. All the faculty members who are teaching courses have more financial support for what they're trying to do. The head of the university has more financial resources to build back the facilities of the university. It's one after another after another. Everybody's benefiting. And why is he so darn good at it? Well, yes, he's brilliant. Yes, he's well-educated. And he's been doing it for a long time. And he's very, very disciplined. But watch the part that's really important. He's completely objective and rational. Right. And he's very good with people, and he's probably the best client anybody ever had. Tough, really tough as a client, but so honest, so straight, and so helpful Mm. that everybody wants to have David Swenson as a client. So he gets to pick and choose from all the very best, and he's very, very careful at his selectivity, largely on integrity of the discipline of your investing and the integrity of the people who are working in the organization. When you get checked out by Swenson and his team, you get checked out more carefully than the CIA would check you out if you were going to be Secretary of State for the United States. It's an unbelievable process, trying to be sure they don't make any mistakes. Last part, David Swenson and his team 
have a scuttlebutt network that goes throughout the investment management world. Mm-hmm. There's no one who has more people who say, if I could ever be helpful to David Swenson, just a little bit, sometime, once, I would love to. So he gets all kinds of people feeding him ideas, insights, possibilities, things that might be useful because he's such a good user. And one of the best users ways he uses it is not just for the Yale endowment, which gets undivided, first attention. Right. But then he also has been very, very helpful in teaching people how to do that kind of investing. And if you look at the top 50 universities, about a third of them have got a David Swenson educated, developed, and certified individual doing the investment management at that university. He's done a lot of people a lot of good for a long time. So- that raises the uh, the other university not too far uh, in in the next state in in Massachusetts. Why has the Harvard endowment stumbled the way it has? There's been all sorts of crazy turnover. If you remember, about ten or fifteen years ago, there was some sort of um, general offense at how much the managers of the endowment were making, and they were putting up really good numbers. A lot of that team left. Now there's been two or three CIOs since then. Uh, let's compare and contrast. What does Harvard need to do to, and the Harvard Endowment need to do to look more like, or at least be as successful as, as the Yale Endowment? Well, if you go back to the really great days of the Harvard Endowment, Jack Meyer, who was sure. the Harvard manager, David Swenson, the Yale manager, they became very close friends because they realized they were both motivated by the same values. Do the right thing for the client, do it with intellectual rigor, do it with objectivity at all times, and do it for the long term. Once you get those things down pat as this is the way we're going to do it, it leads you in a particular direction. I think that's been really important. The second thing is the governance, the oversight of the Yale Endowment has been very, very consistent and contributing in a very nice way. One reason it's been so consistent is that David Swenson has been carefully picking and choosing the people that ought to be candidates, Mm -hmm. and the candidates have been then selected by the present university and David Swenson jointly, so that they've had a very nice capability in governance, and that's been a stability that's been enormously helpful. That's the key word, is stability. You haven't had that uh, in Cambridge. That's been missing from from the Harvard Endowment. Um, so it is what it is. I like the, the joke that uh, it's a hedge fund with a uni- small university attached to it is, is how some people have, have described uh, Harvard. Um, I don't know if that's true. No, it's not. But, but it, certainly is, it certainly is interesting. Let, let's get back to my list of standard questions. So you, you mentioned Swenson, you mentioned Buffett, any other investors uh, or thinkers that you want to reference in, in the people who have influenced your approach to investing? Well, I've been very privileged because I've been all over the world working with a lot of different people. And if you started going through the list, you know, you'd have to pick up Eng Kok Song, who for many years was chief investor for the GIC in Singapore, a very large sovereign wealth fund. Uh-huh. Uh, you go to London and Peter Stornwith Darling would be another top of the deck. He was the guy that was in charge of Warburg Investment Management in its glorious and great days. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the United States, all kinds of different people have been terrific. Jim Rothenberg at Capital Group would have been one of those individuals. Now, uh, David Testa, T. Rowe Price would be another. Uh, 
large number of really, really gifted people. All right, so let's shift subjects a little bit. People always ask about books. We we talked about some of your books as well as, um, uh, as well as extraordinary tennis. What other sorts of books um, have you enjoyed, or would you recommend? What sort of finance related fiction, nonfiction? What what books do you uh, fill your line your bookshelves at home? Well, I love to read biography and history. I have to be responsible for reading investment books, and I like to be responsible for reading business books. But what I really like doing is biography and history because I can learn forever lessons by doing that. G- give and us a few uh, examples of some We'll start bios. with an author like Ron Chernow, who most people sure. think of. Yeah, he did Hamilton. But of he course. did some wonderful, wonderful books on business organizations that are bar none. His book on Morgan, his book on John D. Rockefeller, Terrific books and full of insight and understanding. It's funny you mentioned those two. The person I had you sign uh, your book to, Mike, who's the head of my research in my firm, he's read both of those. He's read the the Morgan and he's read the Rockefeller bio, and he said they're both astonishing. They're really terrific. Just unbelievably researched and deep, and these guys led amazing, amazing lives. And, and we all ought to read Robert Caro's wonderful books about Lyndon Johnson because they are insightful in the details as well as conceptually useful, fabulous lessons all the time about this is the way it really, really is. How many books now are in that Johnson sequence? Four so far. All right, because I remember, Caro, from The Power Broker about Robert Moses. A in terrific book. Thick, a thousand pages. It's but, still a terrific but book. But worth, absolutely worth reading. <laughs> it's five really great books in one package. I mean, it's a wonderful right. book. Um, so you mentioned uh, investment and finance books. What what stands out as some of your favorites? Ooh, Arthur Stone Doings, wonderful two-volume corporate finance, mostly for the footnotes, which are about half of every page. Uh-huh. Unbelievably rich body of insight and understanding as things went along through the late 1800s, through the 1900s. It was wow. just a terrific source of learning. Ben Graham and uh, David Dodd's Graham and Dodd is a terrific book, particularly the 1934 edition, which is just is a dream come true. Um, Jason Swag's books are all really worth reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Jonathan, just- Jonathan Clements writes a very nice continuous book that I think is really worth anybody paying attention. Andy Tobias wrote a wonderful book on individual investing. Uh, we're very lucky. People put years and years and years into learning and then a couple of years into condensing into a relatively short package. And you can buy the damn thing in your own local store or you can buy it over the internet for less than 50 bucks. And there's all that knowledge you can carry with you wherever you want to go. I mean, books are an unbelievable bargain. It's funny you mentioned Zweig and Graham and Dodd. We were just in the office uh, a day or two ago talking about the Zweig annotated version of the intelligent investor and the consensus was this is the version you have to get because he describes each chapter so there's the chapter and then there's jason zweig's detailed explanation and series of examples of why each chapter is so insightful and if you ask ben graham he would say get the zweig version because of the annotation high praise indeed so so let's talk we, we've we've referenced or or just hinted about things that have changed since you've joined the industry. 
what do you think is what do you think is the most significant change for the positive, and what do you think is the most significant change for the negative over the past couple of decades? Well, one way of saying the most positive is that things have gotten better and better and better. The markets have been going up, so that's got to be a big, big positive. Mm-hmm. Um, How about structurally? What do you think uh, structurally has been the positive change when when you look? To me, out- that's that's obvious. And that's the easy access to the expertise of large numbers of brilliantly talented people working hard as hell to figure out what prices ought to be called an index fund. You get all the best people working off their tails off every single day, every single night for n- nearly nothing. So uh, that brings us full circle back back to why most people should be buying indexes. Let's talk about the shifts going forward. So we've seen this trend develop especially since the last financial crisis where Vanguard went from under a trillion they're now coming up on 4 trillion what do you think is the next shifts or is it just a continuation of what we've seen uh, algorithm and software and the so-called robo advisors uh, low cost indexing is it just going to extrapolate forward or is something else out out there that is going to change uh, investing in the future. Well, the change forces you just picked up on are going to continue. So-called robo-advisors, very, very helpful for the lower wealth individual part of the market. Uh, indexing being more and more accepted is going to be continued. We're going to take the cost out of investing uh-huh. so that the returns that were available will go mostly to the owners of the capital so that people have more money in their retirement years or mon- more money to spend in the meantime. Those will be positive. Uh, the changes that we see now are going to continue, but the changes we don't yet know because we haven't seen them, artificial intelligence being an obvious illustration of right. that, are going to come piling in on top of – it's going to get to be a finer and finer, faster and faster market, harder and harder to keep up with, let alone beat. Uh, that can be converted to your benefit if you just say, that's the way it is. Uh-huh. So I'm going to go with the flow, and I'm going to use indexing, and that's why people ought to join the index revolution. And <laughs> – um, so here's a question I didn't get to ask you that, that I've wanted to, this came from an emailer. What do you do to relax? What do you do for enjoyment outside of the office? Well, first of all, I'm married to the most wonderful woman I've met. So I really have a nice time with her and it doesn't take long hours at just a few minutes with her is always a treat. Uh, second thing is I happen to love the work I do. I don't mm-hmm. do anything I don't like. I often say to my friends, I quit working at 30. Right. I'm not quite 80, but I have not done anything that I didn't feel like doing, want to do, and enjoy doing. So it's been a marvelous, privileged experience. And I know I'm lucky, but I plan to stay there if I possibly can. Uh, I think learning is always a treat. And I don't know as much as I should know about music. And so Mm -hmm. listening to music is a wonderful opportunity to learn something that's new to me. Uh, And then books that come out. Year after year after year, these wonderful books that are available and chance to learn that. So my last two questions, these are are my favorite two that we ask uh, of all our guests. Um, If a millennial or a recent college grad would come to you and said, I'm interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Finance is a pretty broad field. Mm -hmm. Be sure that you've gone to business school. Think seriously about doing more than business school. So you might do a joint 
law school, business school combination, or do business school and then study economics for an advanced degree afterwards. But be sure you understand knowledge is a very important resource. The second thing is look to be with people you admire greatly for their basic values, how they live year in, year out in an organization that really wants to teach and train young people how to be the best they could be. Because if you've got talent, you want to maximize that talent. The key to that is fast learning curve, particularly in the early years. Third thing is do not do anything because it pays well. Choose what you want to do because you love it. If you're doing what you love doing, you'll get better and better and better at it. As you get better and better and better, you'll be paid well. Anybody in finance who's really good is going to be paid so well that their biggest financial problem over their lifetime they may be poor when they get started, but over their lifetime, their biggest financial problem is how to protect their children from too much money when they die. That That is a very good advice across the board, and it's interesting that people like Warren Buffett have learned the lesson, and they says to their kids, hey, I made this money. Now you go make your money. Don't, don't count on my wealth in order to disincentivize you from going out and but finding Warren, what Warren you need. Warren Buffett's going farther than that. He said, I... Give my children enough so they can choose to do what they really want to do. Mm -hmm. And then, but not so much that they don't have to choose something. Not so much. That makes sense. So they're going to have to find a career, just he's giving them enough of a head start so it allows them a little selectivity. Yeah, open the doors so you can be your first choice and go for what you want to do for a great life. And you're a tough person to ask this question of because most people have to play with the answer, but I'm afraid you've answered this question in the body of your career, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And it's, what do you know about investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you began? Wow. There's so many different things that I didn't know that I wish I'd known, but the main item for me is how sensible it is after everything comes in to change the nature of investment management. All those people, all those tools, all that information, simplify your life, concentrate on the really important questions, and index your operations. Index but you, your operations. But you knew, then, that, you knew that back in 75. That's why I said it's a tough question well, to ask you. Well, you said when you. I first came in. I came in in the early 60s. Oh, really? So you <laughs> wish you <was> – but really, for someone over the course of your career – so usually when I when I ask that question to people, the answer that comes up is, well, here's what I know today that I wish I knew way early in my career. But I kind of feel like you figured a lot of this out pretty early in your career. Uh, that's very generous on your part. I think it's more lucky than brilliance okay. figuring it out. But do what you really, really want to do is something that I – was getting close to understanding then. Mm -hmm. Now I know it's absolutely. And, and it seems like you've managed to do that over, uh, over the whole course of your career. I promised to get you out in time for your lunch date. And so you, we still have uh, uh, a buffer to, to make sure you're going to do that. I, I have to thank you, Charlie, for being so generous uh, with your time. We have been speaking with Charlie Ellis, uh, of the formerly of the Yale Endowment, Greenwich Associates, uh, the Vanguard Board of Directors, Harvard faculty, the list goes on and on. His latest book is Index Revolution. And for those of you who are thinking about putting money in the stock market, this is as good as any place uh, to start. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker, Charlie Vollmer, our producer, Michael Batnick, our uh, director of research, and I can't see who's still in the uh, booth. Oh, you're here. Okay, because I heard a male voice five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, and Medina, who is our recording engineer, we love your comments and feedback. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.